Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. If you have your Bible or your phone or whatever you're working with, I invite you to turn to to John 8. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses there. But uh, on on your way there, uh, well, actually... I'm all verklempt after listening to Marie there. We're going to be continuing our series through the Gospel of John, of course, entitled The Way to the Father. And we've been discovering as a family the ways in which Jesus reveals the heart of the Father, which is what Jesus declared that he came to do. In John 14, 9, we know that Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we've been doing this each week by asking the question, who is God? And then looking to the words and actions of Jesus in the Gospel of John to find the answer to that question. And it's good because it's what Jesus said he came to do. So uh, I've been truly impacted by what Jesus has revealed about God the Father. So as you're turning to John 8, I, wanna, I realize that I've, I've preached a couple times that I haven't told a story in a while. And I had a good story for right now. So um, come back with me to 2002-ish, 2002-2003. Some of you weren't born. I'm kidding. I was in college. Uh, I was in college. I, I went to a college called Palm Beach Atlantic University down in West Palm Beach. Where's Jack? There you go, sir. Uh, Jack was there for a little bit. Uh, that's where my wife Jess and I met. And uh, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is at the top, the northeast part of Florida. And then way down in South Florida is West Palm Beach. So it was about a four or five hour drive down Interstate 95 to get back and forth from school. So I had this 1985 Pontiac Bonneville, and it was brown, but we'll call it gold. And uh, this car was sweet. I did not have a clue how sweet it was, but it was sweet. The inside, the dashboard was all wood. It was the old wood laminate, pan, you know, all the, uh, the clock, the clock on the dashboard was analog. It had a second hand. It just kept going. It was awesome. It was amazing. Uh, but being that it was an 85, it had some things that weren't working as well. Like, for example, the speedometer uh, lagged behind a little how fast you were actually going. Um, I, was, I was 21, 22. I, mean, I didn't care about that. But uh, one particular very beautiful sunny afternoon, I'm driving back home to Jacksonville. It was for like spring break or something like that. And uh, I'm just cruising along, listening to, I don't know, probably Matchbox 20 at that point. And, uh, and I'm, just, I'm just going. It's a beautiful day. It's, it's like a weirdly empty highway day. I-95 can be a nightmare, but nobody else was really out. And I kind of don't actually realize how fast I'm going. <laughs> and of course, my speedometer is not doing, doing me any good. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because it's always out of nowhere, blueberries and cherries in my rearview mirror. <laughs> and I'm just like, son of a gun. It's the start of spring break. And uh, so I pull over and I'm like, all right. You know, you start going through the routine in your head. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and this cop gets out, and she, <laughs> looks like she means business, but being that I'm 21, 22 years old, I'm like, oh good, at least it's a woman, maybe I can stand a chance to get out of this ticket. <laughs> now, to, to best describe this woman, picture your granddad, 
dress him up in a Florida state trooper's uniform. That's what she looked like. She was not playing games. And, you know, she walks up, taps, I roll the window down. We ex- exchange the obligatory pleasantries. And she says, you know, you were doing 90 in a 70. My first thought was, well, that's not. Sorry, speeding is wrong. Do not, do not speed. But I was like, oh, gracious, the way you're looking at me, I thought it was more than that. And I said, I said, I, I, said, I'm, I, I apologize. I was just, there wasn't anybody, whatever you say in that moment. And her next words to me are, are you stupid or do you just want a ticket? And I went, I can see where this is going. Now, those of you who know me know I have a little bit of a penchant for knuckleheadedness. So my honest response in that moment to the state trooper was, well, ma'am, given that those are my two options, I'm stupid. (laughs) And I got a warning. (laughs) Bam! (laughs) I got a warning. She let me off. Your your granddad did not write me a ticket that day. And, And... Don't we all know what it feels like to just be caught? Don't we all know what it feels like to not have a leg to stand on? The evidence is there. You are done. And don't we all know that the one game changer is grace? Changes everything. Grace is a little bit of a buzzword for us. It's a favorite word of ours in the church. It's, it's a good news word. It is a good word. And we... we it's good to celebrate grace, and we like to throw it around, and it's good to. And, and sometimes we get a little extra happy with how we throw grace around. Grace abounds. It's all good. Grace, grace, grace. Like Spider-Man with the grace. Like, it's okay. And, we get, and it's, it's good. It's all true. But I believe what we're going to see from John 8 today is that Jesus reveals something about the character of the Father and the kind, the kind of grace that the Father gives And I think it goes deeper, and it's more than just a buzzword. It's more than just a really, really great thing that we should celebrate, and it is. It's more than just the beginning of a ticket to heaven. The kind of grace that Jesus reveals is in the Father's heart. I want to submit to you that what I think Jesus reveals that we're going to read is that grace is God's carefully crafted and specifically chosen partner to his holiness. Grace is God's carefully chosen and specifically crafted partner for his holiness. And to deal with one without the other will end up with disastrous results. Jesus reveals that God the Father is a God that is holy and gives grace. Our God is holy and gives grace. Now we're going to be looking at a had a narrative passage. It's a narrative account uh, in John 8. Um, we're, we're not going to go, theolo- it's not like reading one of Paul's letters. It's not a theological point by point. It's an account. It's a story of, what, of something that has happened. And if you've already turned there in your phone or in your Bible, you probably have that little nervousness, the clenched jaw that Matt was talking about is coming back because there's this little note at the beginning of John 8 that says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53. There is debate about this passage among scholars. But the debate is about where it goes. Does it come from John, or does it maybe need to be in Luke? Or where, where? And we've settled on putting it here. There is not debate about the inspiration of the content. 
So just everybody chill out. It's in there. Um, and it's a worthwhile study for us uh, because it's, it, it, it allows Jesus to reveal something about the heart of the Father I and mean, the re- relationship between grace and his holiness. Now, because of that, because there, it's worthwhile to take a look at what is happening in John 7, if not from a chronological context, because we don't know necessarily that John 8 immediately followed linearly, time-wise, to to John 7. But it's worthwhile to take a look at John 7 because of the environmental context of what is going on around Jesus' ministry at this time. It gives us a little flavor in which we can find this this, uh, account that we're going to read. And the environment, first and foremost, is an environment really of great division over who Jesus actually is. In John 7, we find Jesus teaching at the Feast of, of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It was a celebration. It was a week-long celebration. The Jewish people of God's provision of harvest dating back to their time in the wilderness. And he's teaching in the temple courts. And people are coming to, to hear Jesus. And he's teaching with such authority that it's shaking them. They're astonished. Because he never studied He never studied in the temple courts. And who is this guy teaching with such authority? And Jesus would reply that his authority comes from his father. And he was teaching so astonishingly that some people reacted by saying, this is the Messiah. And other people were reacting saying, he's demon possessed. It's a two-party system. He's the Messiah. He's demon possessed. But there's division amongst the people over who Jesus is. They know he's something, but what is he? There's also an environment of great suspicion from the Jewish leaders right now. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Jewish religious leaders. They, they have a great suspicion of Jesus because he is usurping their importance and control. By needling in against the laws and traditions that they've set up. They have a major problem with Jesus because they think he's actually light on the law. He's light to the law of Moses. He's light to God's law that he's given our people. And he's starting to turn the people uh, against that a little bit. He's, for example, he's healing and performing miracles on the Sabbath day. (sighs) Unbelievable. To which Jesus responds in John 7, don't turn there, but in verse 21 he says, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you the circumcision, the law, though actually it didn't come from Moses but the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? And he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And later on in verse 28, Jesus says to them, I'm not here on my own authority. Amazing that Jesus would say that. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. Jesus is there operating to reveal the Father. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over centuries and centuries had set up a really, really nice system. They put laws around the law of Moses so that we don't break the law of Moses. And then we were in danger of breaking the laws that help us not break the law of Moses. So we put traditions and more laws around those laws. And it becomes a law fence around the original law that God gave his people. And it's textbook legalism. 
It's laws around laws, around tradition around laws, and you don't break a law because that's against the law to break this law that protects you from breaking the law because you don't want to break the law. Because to break the law is against the law. It's textbook. It's textbook legalism. And they thought, they thought that the result of doing that would end up in holiness, right? We, we, we put laws around the law so we don't break the law because that keeps us holy. So in and of itself, wanting holiness is not, is not the problem. It's not a bad thing. That's not the problem. The doorway to ensuring holiness is the problem. See, even God said in Leviticus 11 to his people in the midst of the law, be holy as I'm holy. I'm telling you, be holy as I'm holy. But the laws around the laws, around the traditions, around the laws and everything, that's not the doorway to God's holiness. And Jesus was flying in the face of this, and he was winning some of the people over. So the environment of great division over who Jesus is, the environment of great suspicion from the, from the religious leaders, is the flavor, that grasping for holiness flavor that we have as we enter into John 8. And we're going to discover how Jesus reveals the Father, and I think it has a huge impact on how the Father outworks his holiness. So let's turn to, to John 8, and let's start with verse 2, and let's read together. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order that they might have a basis for accusing him. It's, it's almost perfect on the Pharisees' part. Yes, we'll talk about their motive, parading this woman around right before she's going to be executed. But the trap itself, this question to trap Jesus, it's almost perfect. It's like deliciously impressive. It's really, really well thought out. And it's seemingly airtight. And, they, and, and they, they, they clearly have no compassion for the woman. They're parading her around. They, it says they made her stand before the people. It would be like, right now, I'm, I'm preaching. Someone walking in and saying, excuse me, uh, James, right in front of everybody. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. That's what, it, that's what they did. It just smacks of conniving already, doesn't it? And then they say, rightfully, well, somewhat rightfully, we'll look at it, but they say, the, the law says, got a stoner. Well, Deuteronomy 22 does speak to adultery, and it does say that the penalty for adultery is death. You know who it's also death for? The man. He's not there. They're not looking for an actual outworking of the justice here. They've put together a hasty trap. The law also doesn't necessarily say that it has to be stoning, but that was the common interpretation of the day. But like I said, it also states that the man is punishable by death. And if they caught her in the act, I'm assuming he was there somewhere. You start to get the smack of the setup. I'm making friends with the ladies. <laughs> but, but on the other side of that, when they say the law says... There is no falsehood in their accusation at the end of the day. 
It's not circumstantially false. The evidence is there. It's conclusive. It's irrefutable. Caught in the act. We have no textual basis to, to think any of that is made up. So they say to Jesus, teacher, now what do you say? What do you say? No, no, no. It's all yours, Jesus. No, no, please. Go ahead. Well, what's at stake for Jesus here? If he says, if he says, come on, guys, don't, we don't need to stone her. She doesn't need to be put to death. Then he instantly confirms every one of their suspicions. Jesus of Nazareth is light to the law. He's light to the law. God's law isn't important to him. He's a self-proclaimed heretic now. This little Jesus problem will have taken care of itself. And we, the religious leaders, are justified in rejecting him because he picks and chooses the times to activate God's holiness. Or to at least take it into account. That's if he says, no, 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 no. Guys, come on, come on. Seriously? If he says, yeah, go for it. Do it. Well, he flies in the face of the compassion and the heart of the Father that he's been revealing that has been resonating so well and clearly with the downtrodden and the lawless and the poor. There's something about that that's been landing with the heart of the Father. And the Pharisees know that if Jesus in that moment takes a hard-line stance of, yeah, line it up, that he loses that or risks losing it. It's, it's seemingly airtight. And the Pharisees, you can kind of just hear their smacking. Their, their, their true motive is revealed. I mean, it even says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It'd be a little different if it said they were really concerned about rampant adultery and wanted to make sure justice was served. No, they're out to get Jesus. Not to mention the woman. I mean, we don't know how or when she got caught or set up or whatever, but like I said, there's no textual basis for assuming that this is a lie. There's no textual basis for us to be like, no, 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 I don't think she did it. No, no. She was caught in the act. The evidence is merciless and the verdict is in. The woman is most helpless at her most wrong. And at the point where she's most sinful, she's in in her most shame. She's got no chance. Lest we forget this in all the midst of everything else that's going on. She has nothing to stand on. And worst of all, next to the holiness of the law... This is right, and it's deserved. Let's not forget that. It's not just mean old Pharisees making something up. We have to admit that one of the things that holiness does, unflinchingly, is it reveals uh, unholiness. Holiness unflinchingly brings to light unholiness. And the Pharisees and their treatment of this are religion and legalism at their most powerful. The Pharisees are religion and legalism at their most powerful. Because as they are coming at it, they are saying the result of holiness is you fall short. And they're not wrong. You have nothing to stand on, you've missed the mark. That's the definition of the word sin. And worst of all, they're right. But their only understanding of holiness beyond that is that it results in condemnation. 
Their only understanding of holiness beyond that is that it results in condemnation. And as we continue reading, we're going to begin to see the divergence between the Pharisees' approach to holiness and the heart of the Father's approach to holiness that Jesus reveals. And we have to keep our eye open as to whether or not Jesus, in his response, compromises the holiness of God. We must keep our eye on that. So let's continue reading. Pick it up again in the second half of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, No, no, really, Jesus, why don't you give us your answer? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus' response to this airtight trap is to blow up the trap. The trap is only airtight Because the Pharisees didn't take into account the one essential partner to God's holiness. His carefully crafted, specifically chosen partner to holiness. And that's grace. It's in the character of God the Father. His grace. Grace is what Jesus is revealing as the partner to holiness. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus never says, what what does Jesus never say? He never discounts or approves her sin. He never puts down the law of God. He never says, it's okay, it's really, it's really all right. He never rejects holiness. He never sweeps anything under the rug. He doesn't try to refute the claims or evidence or like take it to court. He, he is in effect saying, let the result of this begin if there's already holiness amongst you. Because only a holy one can truly condemn or give grace. And Jesus is saying, if that's you, throw the first stone. If that's you. He's not saying, guys, can we, he's not giving a social commentary on sexual sin or any of the ridiculous things you'll hear about this passage. What he is saying is that I'm revealing the essential response of a holy and loving God, and that's grace. If the woman is at her most helpless, at her most wrong, and the Pharisees are religion and legalism at their most powerful, then Jesus is revealing the Father, yes, at his most holy, and yes, at his most gracious. Jesus is revealing the Father at his most holy and his most gracious. God the Father is one and the same in his holiness and grace. See, the Pharisees, if they were preaching this sermon, their title would be, Our God is holy and condemns. Jesus is saying, Our God is holy and gives grace. 
Jesus is revolutionizing the idea of holiness and grace by revealing that they're partners in the character of God the Father. They are partners in the character of God the Father. Holiness, as we've seen, is affected. It's informed by being partnered with grace. It's not changed. It doesn't become less holy. It doesn't get disqualified, but it's, it's informed. It still unflinchingly reveals unholiness, but it doesn't automatically equal condemnation. Still reveals unholiness, but doesn't equal condemnation. Grace also is affected by being partnered with holiness. And I think, myself included, a lot of us need to hear this. In verse 10 and 11, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. What if it, end, what if it ended there? It doesn't. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus Jesus activates grace instead of condemnation, but not for the ending result of just grace. Not for the ending result of just grace. Go now, he says, and leave your life of sin. It's very clear that Jesus sees repentance and holiness as a natural result and outcome of grace. It's a ne- Jesus doesn't bat an eye here. It is a very simple course that he takes. Not condemned? I don't condemn you either. And because of that, go now and leave your life of sin. Grace is not intended to be the end. And it's not intended to be uncoupled. Sorry, Chris and Gwyneth. Nobody? Okay. It's not intended to be uncoupled from holiness. Grace is not intended to be uncoupled from holiness. If it was, Jesus would have just ended, well, neither do I condemn you, and haven't, hasn't this been great? It is okay. It's all swept under the rug. That's not where he ends it. Jesus' grace, sorry, apart from holiness, we are actually left with a grace that's kind of toothless. It's kind of non-essential. It's kind of window dressing. Because apart from holiness... No unholiness is unflinchingly revealed. And there's really no need for grace. And that's not what Jesus has revealed. You see, religion and legalism and what the Pharisees are bringing here actually has a mantra that says, sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. And then there's no condemnation. And Jesus, Jesus is, what Jesus is revealing about the Father says, no, there's no condemnation. Now go and leave your life of sin. Grace is not the final point. Holiness is. Grace is not the final point. Holiness is. Because holiness allows us to be in the presence of God the Father. We're not going to take the time to theologically unpack that. But holiness allows us to be in the presence of God the Father, to know him, to know him. And that has been his heart since the beginning of beginnings. And so grace is the essential partner to that. But grace absent holiness is not the point. Yeah? You know, the the partnership of, as we we bring this into a close, the, the partnership of holiness and grace actually culminates at the cross. 
It's the place where Jesus, in all his holiness, took on the unholiness of mankind, paid the separating price of death. God raised him from the dead in complete victory and power. And that is the place where Jesus bought the prerogative to say, I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you. See, holiness is black and white. If it's not, it's not holiness. And grace is God the Father's scorched earth approach to our unholiness. Because his desire is for us. It's why Peter can write in 2 Peter 3 that God's not willing that any should perish. It's, it's been said that grace is the most amazing miracle as it's partnered with the holiness of God. See, it's, it's, it's wonderful and it's impacting and it's necessary to read about how Jesus heals the blind and raises the dead and feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. And it's amazing to hear that. And I wasn't there. <laughs> but grace is a miracle. The carefully crafted partner to God's holiness Grace is a miracle that does touch you and me directly because God's desire is for us that, he w- that we would know him. And through his grace, we are holy before him. That's a miracle that touches you and me. On the surface, it's not as sexy as feeding 5,000. <laughs> but I think in my heart, it's the supreme miracle. It's the supreme one. Our response to grace activates in our heart through faith as we receive the gift being made available to us by Jesus of grace and declare that we believe in his finished work of salvation. And it results not then in condemnation. It results in an end to our separation from God for now and forever. It it results in an end to even the possibility of walking in condemnation. And it results in access to the Holy Spirit by which we go and leave our life of sin. It's an empowering grace. Something that came through as we were praying this morning. Grace is empowering unto courage and to obedience, unto a response of repentance and following what Jesus Christ has commanded. It's actually the fuel. Not effort, not elbow grease, not accountability, not that book you just finished. All those are great things. Grace is the fuel of holiness. And holiness is the basis for grace. Specifically crafted partners. And this at its core is the gospel. That by Jesus, with the grace of the Father, we are made holy and have complete access We can be and we should be in awe of a holy God. But we can be and should be desperately in love with a gracious God. Before I bring Christian back up, I just just want to say that as I read this account, I, I find myself... I find myself sometimes the Pharisees and I find myself sometimes the the woman accused. Because sometimes I I desperately need a fresh revelation of the grace of God. I'm in that pharisaical position and and, and and my heart needs to be reminded, excuse me, the partner of holiness is grace. 
Thank you. Sometimes I find myself in the woman's position, and I need to be reminded, you have grace. Now, the partner of that is holiness. And I just want to encourage you, if that is, if one of those places is where your heart is, would you just, this week, just allow the Lord to let the truth of that wash over you. Maybe you're in that place where you say, I need a fresh revelation of God's grace because I'm looking to throw the stone. (laughs) Or maybe you say, man, the grace I walk in, I've forgotten the holiness that is partnered with it. And I've made that grace toothless and like Shakespeare says in Macbeth, a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing. And that's not the partnered grace of God with holiness. Britt knew I was going to throw in Shakespeare. Can I pray for us and then I'll give it to Christian. Lord, I just am, I'm just struck by the gravity and the goodness of your character and your heart to say, Not just full in your holiness, which you are. But full in your grace. And full in them together. I confess, even having preached on it, Lord, it still baffles me, honestly. And I just rest in that by your spirit. That you're good. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your finished work on the cross. I thank you, Lord, for the offer of grace and salvation to us that we receive by faith. And I pray, Lord, for a fresh revelation, even now across this room, in hearts that you would say, my grace, my grace, it pours over you. Even now, Lord, where there's been struggle with legalism or attaining holiness, anything that, anything that we walk into attain holiness and therefore avoid condemnation. I just want to pray, Lord, that your grace will be freshly revealed right now in the name of Jesus over hearts. Just freshly reveal and let it be and let us marinate in your grace. And Lord, where there's, where there's been a distancing in, in, in some hearts, if there has been of of, of your holiness from grace. And there's just been this, been this willy-nilly, it's all good. I've, I've been given grace. Grace abounds. I just walk in grace. And I just pray, Lord, that you would bring a fresh sense of courage, of the empowering of that grace to obedience to your word, Jesus. Just a fresh empowering by your spirit, even right now. I thank you, Lord for the partnership of your holiness and grace. And we just give you glory and thank you, Jesus, for revealing the heart of the Father. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.